Welcome back to the Black and Empowered Podcast. In this episode, we are diving deep into a vital conversation surrounding racial trauma and stress. Today, we have Dr. Mesker, who will be sharing her invaluable insights and experiences. This is a recent interview that Dr. Mesker completed with Melanie, who is a fourth-year doctoral student in clinical psychology at Wheaton College. This episode will cover so many areas, from healing, from racial trauma and stress, to microaggressions, to even equipping clinicians with invaluable tools. So whether you are a seasoned professional in the field or you're simply passionate about understanding racial trauma and stress, you are in the right place. So let's go ahead and dive in. I'm Melanie Elson, and I'm here with Dr. Etzker, and we're going to talk about racial stressors and racial trauma. I am just a quick little introduction, Dr. Metzger. I'm, um, I attend Wheaton College. I'm in the PsyD program. I'm now in my fourth year. I'm in, I'm a TA for the, this introduction to trauma course. So that's what I'm doing. And this module is on racial trauma. And so I called upon um, you, the expert, to talk to us today about that. I'm very glad to meet you and very happy to have this conversation. It sounds like you're doing great work there at Wheaton. Congrats on making it to your fourth year. <laughs> I know TA ships are, are both hard and fun for various reasons. So I'm glad that we have this opportunity to talk. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, if you could just introduce um, yourself and and um, um, yeah, what you do. Yeah. So I am, as you said, I'm Dr. Aisha Metzger. I am recently accepting my title as an expert in racial trauma. I will say that I am um, over a decade out of my doctorate, but as you know, this is an emerging field of research. This is a field that there are quite a few of, of us um, who are my friends and colleagues who are doing this work. So I'm recently accepting that title um, and that distinction. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of an introduction, I am from Sierra Leone, West Africa. I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and I traveled back and forth from Sierra Leone as a child. Um, in terms of racism and racial trauma, definitely I would say my early experiences in the school system is what me what got me really interested in just understanding contextual stressors that Black youth and Black families face, I say the system. So for me, it was a school system when I first met and had my first relationships with white people. So just trying to form friendship groups, right, as any kids do, but yeah. really coming from this um, very African household and, you know, being an African booty scratcher in, in class and in school. And now, you know, as I've built my vocabulary, I'm understanding, oh, those were microaggressions and those were micro insults that you were experiencing 
But back then, right, I was just navigating the school system and even almost placed in special ed just due to some difficulties that I was having, code switching, and no difficulties, right, with vocabulary acquisition or language fluency, but just those early experiences and, and really having my dad advocate for me in school and seeing that it was the, for me, it was the benefit of having family involvement, but really getting immersed in the literature and realizing that there are systems of support that Black youth and other ethnically minoritized youth can um, really lean on to help cope and navigate these different systems uh, really got me interested in doing this work. But um, professionally, what I'll say is I, I started my undergrad career here at Georgia State University. I did my doctoral training at the University of South Carolina, and I did internship at the Medical University of South Carolina that really got me um, the opportunity to train and see clients who have experienced interpersonal stressors. And then I realized, wait, my Black clients who have experienced interpersonal stressors are also dealing with these racial stressors. So I really took my research interest then and started trying to understand the ways in which racial stressors really just compound the stress that we're typically experiencing as Black youth, Black emerging adults, and Black families as well. So that's kind of the um, trajectory that I took and the why behind the work that I'm doing. Yes, thank you. Thank you for, um, um, for, for giving us all of that information. And, and wow, yes, your, your personal and professional career has definitely... Um, yeah, it's shown through all of your work. Um, it's a, your your research, amazing. I've been onto your website. You have so much, so much research, so many things. You're you're a wealth of knowledge. Again, thank you. So, um, diving in here, what can you tell us then? Just like what is, um, what is racial stress or and racial trauma? What what is yeah, that? and you know, I appreciate that you put them together because I, I definitely um, think about them as a continuum. So racial stress and racial stressors are just those frightening, those dangerous, those threatening, or those actual lived experiences that people encounter simply because of their race or their ethnicity. Um, I say lived experiences, so those can be direct experiences, but they can also be, we call them vicarious, but that just means to be witnessed through someone else or to be witnessed on the news or the social media. Um, so those are things like, I just talked about being an African booty scratcher. So those are like jokes that people tell that we, or insults that people make, we call those microaggressions. But they're also things like, Police brutality, for example, that can be an individual instance of racism between a officer and a, a black individual, for example, but the, it also speaks to institutions and different policies that we have that make up um, institutional or even systemic racism that are serving as racial stressors. And then racial trauma is really just the, the result of those experiences. So we do know that Black Americans and even those as young as eight are saying that they're encountering up to five daily experiences with these racial stressors. So as we continue, and I see you like, whoa, yeah, literally That's five, right? Yeah, and up to 90% are going to say, so nine out of 10 of us are going to say, I'm experiencing a racial stressor every single week. Mm -hmm. Um 
And so what that means for us in the long term is that some of those individuals are experiencing traumatic responses. And when I say traumatic, that just means that it, it changes the ways that we think about ourselves. It changes the ways that we think about other people. It changes our sense of safety, even our outlook and our worldview. And we know that clinically that can lead to things like depression, anxiety, rumination, fear, hopelessness, helplessness. But also when I say trauma, right? Um, Many people are familiar with PTSD as it pertains to experiencing interpersonal stress like child abuse or sexual assault. Um, but we also know that experiencing racial stressors can lead to racial trauma, which looks just like PTSD. So PTSD is comprised of symptoms that range from things like you hear people talking about having flashbacks. So that's a symptom cluster that we call re-experiencing, which just means that you have these recurrent distressing memories. You might report stressors, or in this case, discrimination in higher numbers. You're also hypervigilant or easily startled or on guard. And that's in response to perceived racism, which is to say, right, like, what do you mean by that? What do you think about that? Um, I flinch like this because I oftentimes flinch when people reach towards me because I, I don't think they're going to punch me in the face, but I think they're going to touch my hair without asking, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, a microaggression or a microinvalidation um, that really talks about that hyperarousal that we have, right? We're just sensitive due to, again, those daily instances that we encounter. And then I talked about like rumination and depression and anxiety, those are just those negative emotions that come into PTSD symptoms or racial trauma symptoms. Um, and then just avoiding people, places, or things, logging off of social media, avoiding the police, yeah. uh, not wanting to interact with white people, right? If you've experienced yeah. so much racism, um, those are symptoms of racial stress and trauma or symptoms of PTSD, really, that people can um, experience as a result of those encounters with those daily racial stressors. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm sorry, I'm sort of thinking um, about uh, this kind of off the questions, but my daughter, she's uh, biracial and just her uh, lived experience and, and it just, yeah, it, it makes me get choked up a little just that her experience had to be this way or or your experience has to be I just yeah anyway sorry yeah I always say that it's a lot even to to think about and then yeah. to really process right that people are going through their day-to-day -day lives experiencing these stressors um but your daughter has you right and <laughs> I had my dad and we all have yeah. people who can turn to to help us cope with those racial stressors so I will say that despite right historically having experienced racial stressors and racial trauma um black people biracial people ethnically minoritized people we do um have a process and systems for healing and for really being able yeah. to overcome those stressors as well nice well that's a perfect sort of um segue here into my next question um regarding healing what do you think clinicians uh, therapists need to be specifically mindful of when taking into consideration um, trauma and race? 
Yeah, I would say there are a few things to really be mindful of. So first, just being mindful, kind of of that initial reaction that you had when I said, yeah. you know, 80% of people or 90% are going to say they're experiencing these stressors each week, just to be mindful of the fact that if you have an ethically minoritized client, even if they're presenting with stress from work or ADHD or any number of presenting problems is likely that they're also experiencing that compounding stressor of racism. So regardless of what they present with, I always say do an early assessment of racial stress and racial trauma to make sure that it's not getting entangled in their other stressors, which it, it often is. And also, I would say it's really important for all clinicians to broach this, this topic of conversation. I think what tends to happen is that clinicians say, okay, if I'm a Black clinician, I'm going to have this client, or if I can find some other area that I am marginalized based on an, an aspect of diversity, then I can have this conversation. But if I'm privileged, or if I'm white, or if I have right some sort of perceived yeah. disconnect, then I can't have this conversation. So I just always say, just be mindful and broach the conversation, regardless of how you were showing up in session, do your work as a clinician to really best help your clients by still broaching the topic of conversation. Okay. Okay. Nice. Um, and you sort of mentioned, um, well, you did mention, um, doing an assessment, um, always doing that's that's so that's really really helpful actually um i had never considered that and i'm so glad now i will um so what are some of your uh what do you what's your go-to assessment measure um or yeah or racial stress racial trauma yeah for racial stress and trauma. yeah yeah so really i'll say it depends um <laughs> it, it depends I'll say that it should be integrated no matter what if you're dealing with a Black client. Okay. Um, if you already know, if they've already started talking about experiencing racism, I say you can give some of these clinical scales that we have. Um, so those are things like the race-based traumatic stress symptom scale. That's one that you can use with adults. For adolescents, I really like the Adolescent Discrimination Distress Index. Um, they're similar. However, the discrimination distress index has subscales that you can look at educational, institutional, and peer discrimination. Um, the race-based traumatic stress symptom scale really just talks about those um, kind of racist experiences that you might encounter as well as your psychological and emotional reactions. Um, the DLER is the daily life experiences with racism scale that allows clinicians to, if you're working with, say, a child and family case, you can give that same scale to adolescents and caregivers to really assess their frequency, as well as the perceived impact of those racist encounters. So how often have you been followed around the store? How often have you been perceived incompetent or less intelligent? And what is the psychological impact? So how distressing has that been for you? Um, because we'll often see, right, that two people experiencing their same racial stressors, some will say, oh, it just rolled off my back. And some will, others will say that was extremely distressing. So we want to we want to get the incident as well as the impact. Um, and then last, I, I did co-author a scale yeah. that's called the unrest. 
Um, yeah. It's a clinical scale. I think it's a great scale because it does allow for us to get an assessment not only of kind of those experiences with racial stress and racial trauma, um, but like you said, even about your daughter, right? She has different experiences as a biracial ex uh, individual. So the unrest, um, which is a Yukon uh, racial stress and trauma survey allows for us to also assess for Black identity. So where are you in your um, racial identity in terms of how you think about yourself, how you think about others? And then we assess for racial socialization. So what sorts of conversations are you having at home? Um, so those are the, I think I, I gave you either three or four. I gave you three yeah, and then I yes. three mine. <laughs> those are the ones that yeah. I like for um, adults adolescents and then if you want to do it with both and then the last is that that clinical scale okay the unrest um i've posted it on um for this module so it's one of the activities that the students will be doing is kind of using it's giving that. and practicing the unrest yeah. awesome and that one does have like i said it's clinical so it does have a, a script that they can follow oh so yes that's great that's yeah. great i'm glad and make them read that article too since you're, uh, you're oh it's up there it's up there. <laughs> and of course great great yeah. great awesome. yeah i i love this this is um this is um i'm, I'm just so excited sorry writing them all down <laughs> And you mentioned I, um, my website. So one thing I'll say about my website, both yes. um they have a they'll have a link to your website to check everything out. Okay. Well. And they should have so on that website are, are resources. So even for like I said, white clinicians should have these conversations. We have handouts with scripts that they can use early on in session just to start broaching the topic of conversation with their clients. If they don't want to use a formal assessment, we have an assessment that is it's first, worst, and last. So what's your first racial stressor, your worst racial stressor that you remember, and then the most um, the most recent one. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a really good informal way to assess racist encounters and experiences for um, Black clients and others who are ethnically minoritized. Nice. Thank you. Um, thank you. Okay. So let's see. Let's, um, how would you, um, speaking of assessments and, and, and how to, uh, diagnose and, and see all that <laughs> that's going on with individuals, how would you say our understanding is limited with the DSM regarding, um, racial trauma? I mean, it's not even in there. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. So I'm a psychologist. Obviously, I, I've, I've drank the Kool-Aid and I buy yeah. but we do know, right? Like I keep saying racial trauma and then I have to reference PTSD. That's because racial trauma isn't even in the DSM. So we're having to say PTSD and then give that specific subcategory or some are just saying not otherwise um, specified. Oh. Um, but even with that, right, like the focus of trauma and and is very highly individualistic in the DSM. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really think about collective trauma that, as you see, right, with some of these highly yeah. publicized incidences, this racial trauma is being experienced on the neighborhood level, on the community level, on the societal level as well. And that is just not considered as all, at all. Um, that kind of focus that they have on individual diagnosis versus um, kind of collective trauma, I think is 
um, the most kind of dire need that we have right now, right? One, to label it as racial trauma, and two, um, I think recently that we've recognized that trauma can be both direct and vicarious, Mm -hmm. but also, right, it could be individual, it can be collective, it's historic in some cases, and I really think that that, um, APA recently declared racism a pandemic, but I think that that distinction would allow for us to really think of this as a societal problem that we all need to be addressing rather than you, the individual, need to learn how to cope with racism. Right. They so wait. The APA declared racism. Racism, a pandemic. This was, uh, this was in I think 2020. This was around okay. the time. This was like the George Floyd, George the Austin Floyd. Sterling, yes. Breonna Taylor, that uprising, yeah. and kind of I think the emergence of the Black exactly. Lives Matter movement. All of that kind of came to a head. And APA, um, right after COVID nineteen was declared right. a pandemic, they made their own statement as exactly. well. Is that a good thing it, to say that it's a pandemic or? Ah, I like that question as well. So like, like, I've even had um, conversations with journal reviewers. Uh, is it a pandemic? Is it an endemic? Is it something right. global, right? I do think that what we can say is that it, it is impacting us on a societal and a, a global level. Okay. I don't think that it is um, distinct to any one area. I think certainly anti-Black racism, right? We can say that it's national as well as global. Um, it, it in some cases, people will say we don't know where it started, right? But we could point to white supremacy, right? So we know the cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, pandemic, endemic, global issue. <laughs> I think whatever we call it, right? What we know mm-hmm. is that we got a vaccine at least for COVID nineteen, and that was disseminated globally, right? There needs to be some sort of global and united effort to eradicate racism just like we have these efforts to eradicate these pandemics and these endemics that we experience. Okay. So it was, it was a good move, you know, to, to sort of. Yeah. Yeah. It has a lot of things, but it, it was definitely good to call it out. Yeah. I stopped um, my introduction at my internship at the Medical University of South Carolina, but I did one in public health at Yale University. Um, And even this past week, I was at APA for a population health summit. And that is to say that, um, like I've been saying, it's not individual. As psychologists, we can't treat it individually. As public health officials and epidemiologists, we know, right, that we have to target this on a more local or on a more global scale as well. Um, So I definitely think that the DSM could catch up and it could help to really emphasize that kind of global impact. And I do think that just labeling it, calling it out, right? Like we got a polio vaccine, we got a chickenpox vaccine. The more that people understand and label um, and really target these detrimental issues, global warming, we all know about reduce, reuse, recycle. We see the benefit of these ads that we have against cigarette smoking and how those have drastically reduced our numbers globally for lung cancer and some of those kind of detrimental impacts. So I think as much as we can say, racism hurts, racial trauma is real, right? These these things that we're saying in terms of public health messaging, racism is a pandemic and it's affecting us all, white people included, right? I think the more that we're able to say that um, and give it a name and a label, then we can start to target it. Okay, okay, good. 
So kind of, okay, so, you know, feeding right into that in the field of psychology, we sort of answered this, but is there a shift? There is a shift. We're noticing a change, a greater awareness to understand racial trauma. Yeah, that, you know, that's, that's double-headed, right? If you go some places, for example, if you go to Florida, my answer is no, right? right. They're going backwards, right? But if you, if you look at other places, if you look at the field as a whole, I definitely will say that there's been that increased public awareness. I think that there has been an increase for psychologists, not only to target that clinical subset of the population, which is like 5% that experience severe mental illness. Um, but we know that 80% of our dollars were going towards that 5%. And we're now starting to have conversations about, okay, how do we target that 15% that's subclinical or that 80% that is not experiencing subclinical levels, but they are experiencing this exposure to racism. And they can also benefit from those coping strategies that we know work clinically. So I definitely think that things like outreach, public health messaging, activism, advocacy, even our research, right, that that we are taking from the clinical population and saying we're going to make it clinical and community-based research, um, as well as just, you know, increasing diversity in the field. I think that all of those things are helping to shape the number of people who are doing this research and doing this practice. Um, it's able to shape the funding that we have towards the work that we're trying to do. It's able, it's allowing for the increase in even cultural competence training and yeah. podcasting and right, right. just right. increasing public awareness. We have TikTok psychologists. I'm I on know, Instagram. Right? I have colleagues who are on Twitter disseminating this same work. So definitely, I think that individually, we're starting to do this work professionally. You're seeing organizations starting to have guidelines and starting to have competence rules for being able to work with ethnically diverse clients, as well as being able to have conversations around racial stress and racial trauma. It's it's so important to do. And I, I do think that we're, we're starting to head in that way. Nice. Um, yeah. Even accreditation, right? They, they want to start seeing not only are you talking about ethics, but that you're integrating diversity into right. the training that you're providing. Yes. With, hasn't been done historically. Right. Nice. Okay. So that is good. We're noticing that. that we're on the way. We're on the way. It's been a while, but yes. Yeah. yeah. So what are um, maybe like three recommendations regarding interventions for clinicians who want to be attuned to the impact of racial, racial stress and, and racial trauma? in the lives of their clients. Um, they want to be attuned to the impact. Yeah, I would say, you know, first, if you want to, if you want to know the impact that it's having on your clients, you do have to do that self-reflection to understand your own biases and your own apprehension. So what do I think is the worst thing that can happen if I have this conversation in session? Yeah. Um, what sorts of microaggressions have I committed in the past? What sorts of yeah. implicit biases do I bring to sessions that make me think, right, that a caregiver is disengaged or doesn't care about their kiddo as opposed to maybe they work a nine to five and can't come into these sessions. Maybe they have transportation barriers, right? Like these biases that we have um, 
need to be checked first and foremost. And then really just making sure that as you're checking your biases, you are supplementing that by doing readings, by doing trainings, by doing um, cultural competence work, right? Making sure that you are showing up in a way that won't be pushing your clients out of sessions. Um, making sure that once you've done all that training, right now you're an expert, that you're not assuming that all your clients are the same. So mm -hmm. that you're creating a safe and inclusive environment and one that's just curious about your clients as the experts in their own lived experiences and that you're able to validate those experiences that your clients have without taking up too much therapeutic space. Um, I think that that helps to establish trust with our clients. So one, being able to say, I can't imagine how that is for you, but I'm, I'm so glad that you're sharing that with me and that we're able to talk about best practices for overcoming that. Also, right with that understanding of biases that exist both within yourself and within the system, being able to say, right, like I know that the system is biased. I know that, for example, Black families are getting their caregivers reported more often for spanking their kids. They're more likely to get their kids taken away. And as a practitioner, I'm a mandated reporter. So what I'm going to tell you is these are my rules around confidentiality and privacy and what spanking is necessary to report and what's not necessary to report. And just having those open conversations with clients, I think, is, is so important. Um, and then last... I did a lot of schooling, right? So I buy into the evidence base of these yeah. clinical strategies. So I would say, just make sure that you use culturally informed interventions. If you're using an intervention that was developed globally, go to my website, get the care package for racial healing and integrate that with the work that you're doing or utilize our treatment adaptation to TFCBT as opposed to the one that was just generated for everyone. Mm -hmm. So just trying to find those culturally informed or culturally adapted interventions, or like I said, just supplement it, supplement it, supplement it <laughs> with something mm -hmm. that will allow you to really engage your clients in their holistic experiences, right? So not just, okay, what'd you come in here for, but what's really underlying yeah. those problems that you're experiencing. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. And your ad adaptation to TFCBT for um, racial socialization just is, um, it is amazing. It, I love that you did that. <laughs> yeah, I'm very I mean, proud of it. I'm, I'm yeah. so glad that it's recently become available for clinicians. Yeah. Anybody doing TFCBT, I'm like, if you're doing it with Black clients, use this one instead now. And right. it was developed with the treatment developer. So it has fidelity. We did a learning community. We got grant funding. Um, I always, I'm like, it's legit. Trust yeah, me. Yeah, it's legit. <laughs> it's the adaptation. But even for those, right, who aren't doing TFCBT, that care package is based on those core components. So psychoeducation, relaxation, right. affect identification, cognitive restructuring. We do all of that in the care package, but right, those are familiar terms because they're in CBT, they're in ACT, they're in DBT. You can integrate and use that with pretty much any evidence-based treatment that you're doing. Wow. See, that is, I'm so happy we're talking. <laughs> all the knowledge you're giving us. Thank you. Thank you for all that work that you've done. On that, what is something you've learned over the years have you, as you've been doing this work, as you've been um, 
you've done so much. Um, but yeah, over the years, what have you learned as um, walking with people facing racial trauma? Yeah, uh, and I'll say most recently, the work that I've been doing is in consultation and training okay. for clinicians who are currently seeing clients. So I have learning communities and I'm able to see these clinicians go from just terrified about having these conversations to saying, oh my God, I used your script for the first time in session. And then to seeing at the end of session, first of all, I got to keep my black clients. They didn't drop out. And two, their outcomes are so much better than they usually are. Yeah. And what those clinicians are saying is that first and foremost, they didn't know that they were coming in with expertise that would really help, right? So I think that they initially think I'm white or I'm old or I'm just unable to connect with clients because I don't have the same lived experiences as them. And the first thing I say is, listen, just saying that is going to open the door to trust. It's going to allow you to really validate your client's experiences within the system because trust me, they're used to that. It's going to allow you to really build that initial rapport. And those clinicians who face that initial fear and have those conversations are saying, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I was able to have that conversation. And my client is really benefiting from that as well. Um, so I think that that's the, the main thing. Just have the conversation, yeah. know that you are an expert in something mm -hmm. and that you shouldn't yeah. feel like you're going into this session with all the answers because your clients have to build, bring in their lived experience as well. Um, I'd also say, right, healing is, it's a lifelong journey. We think of psychological treatment as something that's short term, um, but really we equip our clients with the skills to continue navigating racism until, like I said, we can eradicate it, right? right. Um, but until then, we know that healing is a lifelong journey. It's a family process. It's a community-based process. So as much as we're able to validate those experiences, give those skills, teach clients, and really empower clients to navigate those racial stressors, they're often able to say, even when we do follow-up, even when we do booster sessions, oh my God, I'm still using these same strategies. They're still useful for me. I'm practicing PMR with my colleagues or with my classmates. And we start to see it trickle down. Nice. Uh, so that's something that I'll say I've definitely noticed is that, you know, healing is lifelong and it, it, it takes a village, just like it takes a village to raise a kid, right? It takes yeah. a village to, to heal and to cope with, with racism. Um, I say those are the main things. And then, right, just the need for allyship, for advocacy, and, and really for public health awareness. Some people will say just that yard sign that I put up made so many more people from our community willing and able to come in. Nice. Um, they knew that this was, a, they, were, they, they came to know that this is a place that wants to help them and wants to talk to them about their specific problems and not stigmatize them. So we do have that public health messaging that goes into, right, that activism and that allyship that's so very important as well. Nice, thank you. I, I love that you're, that you, are able to do the consultation and see um, the change happening. Um, and it's sort of like reaping the benefits of all this work that you do. And and um, I, I love that. I love that you're like, you're making a change in people. <laughs> and, and it's just like so clear. Um, so what do you think um, uh, are your biggest challenges in research? 
uh, you do a lot of research. What have you found any um, challenges um, yeah. on racial yeah. trauma research. Yeah. And whenever someone talks about challenges, I'm like, money, we need money. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All <laughs> right. right. Yes, money is, yeah. Funding. We need resources. We need yeah. um, FOAs, these funding announcements. We need mm -hmm. earmarked funds for racism, just like we have yeah. earmarked funds for breast cancer and Alzheimer's research right. and maternal health. Racism is impacting society on just the same level. So I think that that's the first thing that I say. It's a huge mm. barrier, right? We have to somehow fit our work into the existing calls. Mm -hmm. But the more that we can have calls that specifically target structural racism or underserved groups or marginalized groups, then the easier it is for us to target our research and to get our research funded. Um, okay. Yeah. I did. I, I gave you four measures earlier, but what I'll say is that in terms of conceptualization and measurement, we need we need better validated um, measures that are done on large populations and that are specific to right both caregivers and youth and adults that have measures of individual as well as institutional and systemic racism. So as we're doing this basic science, we can really become more clear on the impact of racism. Um, and the more that, right, we can improve the validity and the reliability of these measures, the, the better our research will be. Nice. Yeah, I, um, I'm doing my dissertation on racism, but as it pertains to uh, multiracial identity formation. Oh, wow. And specifically because of my daughter. You're and using the mind, right? The multi-ethnic identity yeah, scale. I am, but I also have another, a few others that I'm using. But I've noticed when I was doing my uh, lit review that there is not a lot out there. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, um, yeah, just and and like you mentioned, like a large scale um, research, they're 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 smaller, you know, a lot smaller, and and so anyway, um, yeah, there definitely Rest needs to, to you. Congrats <laughs> to you on that dissertation project. Yes, thank you. And then you got to publish it, right? <laughs> so that right. That's it what my chair says, stuff. but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, add me to the number that's encouraging you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so as we sort of wrap up, um, like what, what are, I guess you've, you've sort of said all this, like I kind of have this, um, this last question of like, what would other professionals, what can they, what are ways like pastors or nurses or other professionals can be better allies? I feel like you've touched on it, um, yeah, I think the idea of cultural competence, cultural humility yeah. is huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like that you said both nurses and pastors, right? Because you're talking about professionals and members of our community. And those I think are both critically important, right? Some people are going to be in, engaged in care. Other people are going to say, I get my therapy from my pastor or my barber and my hairdresser I, or yes. my eco. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We need those. We call them lay professionals, but we, yes. we need those 
um, those individuals who people trust, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. who go to, to be able to help us cope with these experiences that we're having with racism as well. So, ooh, perfect that you act <laughs> that way. So nurses and pastors, right? I think that both of these groups can help serve as an ally by just educating themselves, yeah. by being approachable, listening to people who come to you with racial stressors, validating their experiences, um, doing that self-reflection that's necessary to say, oops, am I acting as a white savior now or am I asking them what they need? Um, am I able to speak out when I see injustice? Some of the main trainings that I do are just on bystander intervention. Like, what do you do when you see it, right? How do you intervene? How do you help de-escalate? Um, as well as how do you speak out? How do you help? How do you petition? How do you serve on a community level? Um, they can do things like just supporting minority-owned businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Collaborating with minority-owned businesses, targeting underserved populations. Mm -hmm. If you're a pastor, talk to that quiet kid in the back. Talk to that caregiver who only showed up once this year. I, I, I had pastors who used to call us out like, you only coming on Easter Sunday? Well, this is the perfect time to outreach, right? So yeah. just making sure that you are really speaking with your community and working with your community and not talking down to them, yeah. um, promoting inclusivity. So I said, bring in ethnically minoritized people, but bring in different groups of people so we can celebrate diversity, I think is really important. Um, and then, you know, there are things that we can, I talked about educating yourself, right? So that's reading the books, listening to the podcast, watching the videos, but actually having these conversations yeah. offering any support that you can, offering any resources that you can, um, and really just using your privilege as a way to serve as a bridge between yourself and whatever it is that that, that client might need, whether that's just a voice to listen to, or let's look up this other business that you can go to as opposed to this one who just followed you around the store, or yeah, this yeah. is a neighborhood. Let's write a petition to say under no circumstances should it take four hours for the police to come oh and, and there's been no neighborhood violence, right? And these are concrete things that clients are coming in stressed about or that people are talking to their pastors or their barbers about. And when, you, when you're able to both validate that experience, but also say, okay, what can we do about it? Okay. That's when you really start to empower communities. I love it. Thank you. I feel inspired. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I think we've, um, I've asked you a ton of questions. You've answered so much. It just, again, this has been such an honor to speak with you and, and learn from you. Um, uh, I'm so happy that you reached out. And I think you used a form on my website, right? So, yeah. yes. Yeah. I <laughs> thought I should do it like, you know, I don't know. I, I wanted to do it the proper way and not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy you did. Listen, I have people DMing me on Instagram. I have people finding my work email address. However, you can get in contact with me, please okay. do. Um, okay. But definitely, like you said, we have all these resources that are available yes, on our website. You do. Your too. website is, yes. I, I want to send it to my daughter, but I don't, I don't know. I, I, I to her or just okay. go to so I have that that list of online how old is your daughter she's 27 I'm 28 
what a good age yeah, yeah. i have on my resources if you skip by past like all the clinician handouts and stuff yes you yeah have youtube netflix right yo send her right. one maybe not the research articles maybe she'll like my podcast i don't know well um, i'm yeah i wanted like the youtube videos are, are yeah. always engaging and i was watching some of the youtube videos and i'm like oh i, I like they remind me of my daughter kind of already and also like your recommendations recommending beyonce is um stuff and she's obsessed Please, with Beyonce. <laughs> yes. Yes. Her to yes. look, look right here. This is yes. Beyonce all over everything. Yes. Literally. She oh, yes. just went to three Beyonce concerts. She saw her she saw her in Chicago. She flew out to Chicago to see her. She saw her twice in LA. She lives in LA. I am obsessed with your daughter. Did she go to the, the birthday performance? Yes. She was oh, there. I'm so jealous. Oh, she I will die. She was on the floor, right in the front, dancing. Are she you a- kidding me? She's my best friend. Listen, yeah. I am founding <laughs> member of the Beehive. I was in the Beehive for the oh. I saw her in London. I need to see her either. I'm thinking about either Houston or New Orleans, but I love your daughter. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Better go three times. That and 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 what I'll tell you is don't think she's wasting money. Each of those shows were completely different. And that's what she said. Yeah. Oh, she's like, no, each show was completely different. And she gave me, she told me all the reasons why I'm like, all right. And And now I want your daughter to call me. She should have been on this. (laughs) That is Um, amazing. She's amazing. She's a writer and actress and yeah, she works for Nickelodeon and yeah. And yeah. okay, so I know she's so inspired. She's working so hard right now in the aftermath of Renaissance. Yeah, yeah. So that she dressed up each time, of course. Yeah, you must. You must. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you're gonna dress up. And she goes, Mom, please. I have to. And Beyonce gave a dress code for the LA. Yes, she did. That everyone needs to be in chrome. Mm, I love it. I love it. That's mm-hmm. perfect. Yep. Wow. Your daughter's yes. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> life goals I tell you <laughs> yeah <laughs> well thank you thank you thank you so much for your time it was a thank great you. pleasure thank you for reaching out and for the work yeah. that you do I really appreciate you Thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope that you found it to be informative and also inspiring. Your support literally means the world to us. So we really value your feedback and encourage you to leave a review. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode.